We've been in a sermon series uh, titled, Can't Google That. And uh, we've, we've, we've been talking here about, for about a month now, going through the book of Proverbs together. And uh, I, one thing that happened this week was uh, we we're in the offices, and uh, like we are each week, and we, for, we were out without internet for two and a half days. Um, you would have thought we were without oxygen for two and a half days. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you don't realize how much you, you, you rely on something until it's gone, right? Um, and, and so we, we were just kind of like trying to figure this thing out. It wasn't, it wasn't working. And the real, reality is that everything that we do is in the cloud. What, I don't know where that is or what that means, but like everything that we access, it's not on like paper and stuff. It's all, it's all in the cloud. And so um, like it was just weird. Like my phone wasn't half as interesting because there's like nothing to see on it. Uh, email was backing up. People were breaking out pads of paper and pencils. It was crazy. They had HR complaints about cramped up hands from writing. You know, it was like... Um, it was awesome. Two and a half days of missing all of the political ranting. Um, with the struggle was real, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you. Um, anyway, as we were going through it, I was realizing, as we were talking about this whole idea of can't Google that, I literally couldn't Google stuff. And, uh, and it was, it, the struggle was real. And it was this realization that we live in a world where we have knowledge literally in the palm of our hand, and yet we, uh, we struggle to find wisdom. We struggle to, to be able to locate what is the wise thing to do. Because you can Google knowledge, but you can't Google wisdom. And so we've been asking this one question over the past three weeks, four weeks, which is this, what is the wise thing to do? In light of our past, in light of you know, where we are currently, our current circumstances, wherever you're at, and, and what it is that you're planning for, and you think that God is, is wanting for your future, what is the wise thing to do, and, and asking that question will help you understand what the wise thing to do is, but how many of you know it does not guarantee that you'll actually do it, right? <laughs> in fact, if I were honest, if I were like gut level honest with you, there have been far too many times in my own life where I've known the wise thing to do. That was not the problem. I've no, I knew what the wise thing to do was. I just didn't want to do it, Right? I just said, yeah, that's great. I know that this, this is what I should be doing, but I'm not going to do it. And in fact, I've, I've dismissed or deflected wisdom and rationalized how my circumstances are, are the exception to wisdom's counsel. I know you've never done this, but you get in this place, just so you know, in case you ever encounter this, where you, you start to see your circumstances as like the exception to the rule. Everybody else needs to do this, and this is wisdom, and this is what they should be doing, but for me and my circumstances, Jesus understands that like what's going on in my life is the exception to this one rule. I wouldn't want my kids to do it, but for me, Jesus understands that this thing is, this is different, and, and he's okay with that. Because knowing wisdom and doing it are two very different things, aren't they? And we've said uh, from week one, if you want to go back into our first week of, of preaching about um, this whole book of Proverbs, we said that knowing the wise thing to do and yet choosing to not do it, Solomon actually, he starts to call people names and he actually defines that person and he says that person is known as, in the book of Proverbs, as a fool. That's a fool, somebody who knows the wise thing to do and then yet does not want to do it um, or doesn't do it. And we all know fools in our life. 
We all have, we all have people, nobody in here, but like there's people that like didn't come to church today because they're a fool. I pity the fool, right? But like there, there are people that we all know that look at you, they know the wise thing to do, and yet they look at you and they say, I don't care. I don't care. Bug out of my life. I don't want to hear it. I don't want your stuff, right? We all know people that are, but for the rest of us, like when it comes to like this whole fool thing, like I may not be doing the wise thing all the time, but like don't call me a fool. Like I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I understand that like, yeah, there are some things that I probably should be doing that I'm not, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm certainly not a fool. And it sounds like Solomon is name calling. And what I would say is this, Solomon is actually pointing out something that we just all know to be true, even in our own life. And it's this. You cannot back away from something without backing into something else. It's the first thing that we learn. Well, maybe the second thing that we learn when we start to drive, right? First, you got to figure out how to go forward. But when you start to learn how to go in reverse, you quickly realize you cannot back away from something without backing into something else. Have you ever learned the hard way? Come on. All right. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Noiser. Um, so this was a little while ago. Uh, I, was, I, was, I got in my truck, and, and uh, I, my wife hopped in the passenger seat, and um, I, we, were, we were late, or at least I felt like we were late. And so I, I put it in reverse, and I just started backing up. <clears throat> and, and I backed up into my wife's car that was parked behind me. Now listen, I didn't intentionally do it. Like there was no intention, like I don't care. Mm, like just going right back into it. Now, I don't know, like maybe you've done that before where you're just like, I'll get him, you know, and just, you know, but I, I didn't intentionally do this. I just, in, I, it was unintentional. But it's this reality that we live within that we can't back away from something without backing into something else. We can't back away from wisdom without backing into foolishness and folly and unwise choices. And maybe it's not intentional. Maybe it's unintentional, but it's just true. You can't back away from God's wisdom and think that you're not intentionally or unintentionally backing into something else. So my wife is here and she'll tell you the rest of the story. But anyway... Um, most of us don't want to be considered fools, right? And yet, I don't know about you, but I find myself having worn out the seat of a fool a whole lot more than I'd like to admit. Now, here's the thing that I've been asking this week. Even as we've been studying and as I've been reading through the book of Proverbs along with you, many of you guys have taken the challenge to read a chapter a day of the book of Proverbs for 31 days or 31 chapters. So as I've been reading through it, there's this there's this phrase that keeps popping up to me and because I've been asking, like, what is the key? Why is it that I want to sit in the seat of the wise and yet I find myself sitting in the seat of the fool? Why is it that people in my life, they know the wise thing to do and yet they're just not doing it? Maybe it's like, I don't care, but out of my life, or they just, they're just saying, yeah, maybe some other day, maybe for some other time, for some other person. What's the key? And Solomon the writer of Proverbs, the Bible says the wisest man that, that, that ever lived, answers this question for us. And he says this phrase over and over and over and over again. If you've read through the book of Proverbs along with us, you will have kind of stumbled across this phrase many, many times. And it's a little unsettling. Uh, it's a little nebulous. It's a little bit abstract. And yet there's, there's something to it because he keeps repeating it over and over again. If you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs 9, verse 10, 
Uh, we'll have it up on the screens if you don't have your Bible with you. Uh, Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, what does Solomon say is the key to walking in wisdom? What, what is he saying that is the beginning of wisdom? What? The, the fear of the Lord. Now, I, I, I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I think, like, I think I grew up with that. Like, I think I grew up being scared of God. Like, that, that whole fear of God thing was, was, was pretty real for me. Like, you know, I feared that, like, God was going to smite me turn me into a grease spot on the carpet if I, if I didn't do the right thing or I did the bad thing or I, or I skipped church. I mean, I had this kind of like, I would never say this out loud, but I had this kind of understanding like Jesus is coming soon and man, is he ticked off. Like, like it wasn't ever like, a, oh, Jesus is coming. You know, he's going to come riding on the clouds. It was like, oh no, he's mad, right? Because I, I did something I shouldn't have done or whatever. Like there was never like this, like, oh, I'm so excited. It was like this fear of God, the fear of the Lord. So when I read this, I'm like, yeah, 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 I, I get the fear of the Lord, but what does that have to do with wisdom? What does being scared of God have to do with wisdom? And this is what I would say to you, is that the fear of the Lord does not mean that you're scared of the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're scared of him. The fear of the Lord is not something that drives us from him. The fear of the Lord is something that drives us to him. Now, if you've ever experienced what I'm talking about, this, this fear of God, it's, it's kind of like that searchlight thing. It's not the thing where you're like, oh, no, and you run away from it. It's this, oh, my gosh, yes, come closer. I need more of this. The fear of the Lord is not, is not something that, that drives us away from him. It's something that drives us closer. And if you're taking notes this morning, I have a definition there kind of a fill in the blank, and it says this. Here's a definition of the fear of the Lord, at least for us to work from. It says this, recognition and reverence that lead to submission. That's the fear of the Lord. Recognition and reverence of God that lead to submission to God. That is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because many of us can know the wise thing to do, but do we have the recognition and the reverence of the Lord that leads us to submitting to God's will, to bending our will to God's will? That's why I said that that is the beginning of, of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. We may know the wise thing to do, but do we recognize and have reverence towards, towards the Lord to submit our will to his will. Proverbs 22, 4 says this, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. In other words, the fear of the Lord is to live life with this continual uh, awareness that we are in the presence of an almighty, all holy, all just God. This is this, this reality. I'm living in the presence of this God. The fear of the Lord is, to, is coming to the realization that, that, I, that I, if I have a thought or a feeling and God says something different, God's right, and I'm not. That's the fear of the Lord. It's, it's saying, God, you're God, and I'm not. 
God, I realize that, that, that you know more about my marriage than I do. God, you know more about my finances than I do. God, you know more about raising my kids than I do. I believe that you know more about, about my life than I do. And so because of that, Lord, I am submitting my life and my ways to you. And God, I know that there will be times where what you will ask of me, I will not understand. And there will be times where I do understand. But I am committed. My mind is made up that your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And so, Lord, I submit my ways and my thoughts to you. That is the fear of the Lord. And it's this attitude that will determine your level of wisdom. In fact, Proverbs 9 actually says that it is this attitude that is the foundation upon which a life of wisdom is built. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. So as you're wanting to get wisdom in your life, as you're seeking after wisdom, if you do not have the fear of the Lord, in other words, a recognition and a reverence of God that he's God and you're not, and I'm willing to bend my ways to your ways, Lord, it will fall on deaf ears. Or you'll know the wise thing to do and yet not do it. The second, in your notes, it says this, the beginning of wisdom is not a question. It's a decision. The beginning of wisdom is not, what's the wise thing to do? The beginning of wisdom is coming to this place. Before I even ask that question, I'm saying, Lord, my mind is made up. My heart is set. Whatever you have to say, I submit myself to you. Lord, you are, you are God and I'm not. And so Jesus, I, I just relinquish and I submit my life, my ways, my decisions to you. If your word says something different than I think, I submit it to you, Jesus, that you're right and I'm not. That's, what, that's, what, that's essentially what he's saying. The beginning of wisdom is the decision to simply submit yourself to the authority of your heavenly father in all of your ways. The beginning of wisdom is, is realizing that, 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 that the wisest thing that we can do when it comes to decision-making is to make pre-decisions. I want you to think this through with me. Because in order to make wise decisions in life, we must make a pre-decision to submit to the author of life. I just want to say, so many of things, like decisions that I make in my life are actually pre-decisions that I've made before the decision. Why? Because I don't make good decisions in the moment. And I would bet that you don't either. Because why? When, when I'm confronted with decisions, I, I, I'm confronted with my own emotions, my own excuses, my own anger. Listen, I, I, am, I am way too emotionally involved in my own decision making. That's just the truth. And I would say this to you, you are way too emotionally involved in your own decision-making process. Why? Because some of the things that, that you, when you look at your own life and decisions that you're making, you would never say that somebody else should do that, but, but given to your own emotional circumstances, you think, well, this is, this is the only way out. So, but so much of my life is made up of, of pre-decisions. I, I was thinking about it like, you know, I, I've pre-decided that, that I will not hang out alone or, or ride in a car with a woman who is not my wife. It's a pre-decision. I don't have to make that decision. There's no like, huh, wonder what I should do. It's a pre-decision. Now, is it because I can't be trusted? No, it's because it's wise. It's just wise. It's just a wise thing to do. I've pre-decided that I'm going to have um, accountability and filtering software on all of my devices they access the internet. Is it because I'm weak? 
No, it's because it's wise. It's wise to make pre-decisions in your life to say, this has already been decided, so I'm sorry, when this temptation comes my way, there's really not, I've created a wall so far, so far beyond that, that, that when the decision comes, I've already pre-decided this thing. You understand what I mean when I'm talking about pre-decisions? That, that because of uh, the beginning of wisdom is not a question, it's a decision, that, that we submit our, our ways to God, even if we think differently. That what he says trumps what we say. That's the beginning of wisdom. And then he continues in, in Proverbs 9, verse 10. The, the second part of it, he says, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, sometimes we read stuff and we're like, yeah, that sounds so deep. Such knowledge is too lofty for me. I don't even know what that means. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Yeah, I should put that on my Instagram. Like, that sounds so awesome. Like, but what does that mean? I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of thick, so I start asking these questions. Like, what, what does knowledge of the Holy One mean, and why is that understanding? Those two things don't seem to make any sense to me. So I start looking it up. It's like this reality that what he's not talking about is knowing facts about God. Or having, you know, even memorized the Bible, knowing things about God. What he's saying is this knowledge of the Holy One can also be translated entering into a covenantal relationship with God. Knowing God in the biblical sense of, of knowing, right? So the knowledge of the Holy One is coming into a covenantal relationship with God, which is very, very different than sometimes how we can read this. Let me explain to you. As Christians, we've been doing this for years. We, we, we say this when we, when we talk to people who, who are maybe not Christians or whatever, we'll say, you know, being a Christian is not about a, re, a religion. It's about a relationship. We say that. I, I've, I say that. It's, I'm, I'm, I, I like that. I'm not opposed to it. It's like, because it is. It is about not just religion and it's about having a relationship. Or we take it to the next step. We say, it's about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? I mean, th that's good. And, and that makes sense. And I get that. But here's the problem that I see as we look out, like, at, at, at kind of that line of reasoning play, played out to its fullest extent. It's this. When, when we just say, well, well, it's, being a Christian is about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It leaves it up to the individual to define the relationship. Personal relationship could be anything. I mean, I could have a personal relationship with you and say, you don't have a right to speak into my life. And we still have a personal relationship. I mean, I could say, you know, we got a personal relationship, but like you just butt out. I don't want to hear what you have to say, but we could still have a personal relationship, right? I mean, we still are in some sort of a personal relationship. Like a personal relationship could be a whole, a whole bunch of different things. It could be a friendship. It could be an acquaintance. It could be a marriage. It could be a one-night stand. You could say, I have a personal relationship with somebody, and it could mean so many different things depending on who's defining the relationship and what a personal relationship means to them. But what, that's not what, what, what Proverbs says. When we talk about knowledge of the Holy One, we're talking about coming into a covenantal relationship with God. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we don't just come into a personal relationship with God. We're not just coming into like, hey, he's an acquaintance, he's a friend, he's a one-night stand. We're coming into a covenantal relationship with the Holy One. It's not just a personal relationship. 
And so in many ways, I think in, in some ways, that our American Christianity has kind of done ourselves a disservice by saying it's all about just having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, however you want to define that. However you choose, that's what it is. But the Bible says it's a covenantal relationship. Now, if you don't kind of grasp what I'm, where I'm going at, there, there are other covenants that, that we might understand, and one of them is marriage. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. The end goal of my marriage with Katie is not that we would have a personal relationship with each other. Because why? Because marriage is a set-apart relationship. It's not like what I have with you. It's not like what I have with you. Our marriage is a totally different relationship. It is a covenantal relationship that I have with one person. The Bible says that to become one, I'm no longer like one guy, single guy, doing whatever I want with my money, whatever I choose. When I get married, I now have to think of her. I have to think about what she wants to do, where she wants to go out to dinner, what, where she wants to spend her money, right? All of a sudden now, I'm not my own guy. I, I, I don't just do whatever I want with my stuff. I have to now like, like consult someone. And submit it to her. Like, she got to agree with me? Like, are you kidding me right now? But a covenantal relationship looks like that. That's the difference between what, what you and I have and, and what her and I have. And no offense, but I care so much more about what she says about me than what you say about me. Why? Because you and I have a personal relationship. If that, what, what we have is a covenantal relationship. And the cool thing about a covenantal relationship is you get the best of this person and they get the best of you, right? So when I think about like, I, I am under no false pretenses that I've married up, okay? Like I, am, I, I, I know this to be true. I know that like, it, you know, I get the benefits of having a, a loving, caring, amazing, smoking hot wife. Like I, I get that. Like, and she gets all this, right? Come on. You're welcome, baby, right? Come on. But here's the thing, that's the beauty of a covenantal relationship. It goes above and beyond, I've got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. No, when we come into covenantal relationship with Jesus, when we receive the best that he has to offer, which is eternal life through Christ, then, then, then you know what, we, we give something in return. He expects that this is a covenant. This isn't a one-night stand, this isn't an acquaintance, this isn't a Facebook friend. It's a covenantal relationship. Right? You get it? <laughs> You're still thinking of my smoking hot wife, aren't you? <laughs> That's how it is with God. It's a covenantal relationship. The end goal of a Christian is not to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not. It's not. The end goal of a Christian is to enter into a covenantal relationship with God through Jesus. And we measure that, we measure that by trust, we measure that by obedience, we measure that by bending our will to the will of the one that we say that we love. That's how she measures it. That's how God measures it. It's not just a personal relationship. His word in your life should trump your word all day long. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. So, when it comes to making wise decisions, I'll move on. I know you loved it. Uh, we, all have, 
we all have something working against us. Whenever we're, when, I just need you to realize this because I realize it about myself. When it comes to making wise decisions, we all have something working against us, and that thing is ourselves. <laughs> you can sometimes be your own worst enemy at making wise decisions. Do you know that? Why? Because you are too emotionally involved in your own decisions. We say this sometimes when we look at people that are enabling somebody who's abusive. Oh, they're too emotionally involved to be able to like make right decisions. I'm telling you, when it comes to yourself and your own personal life decisions, you are too emotionally involved in your own life decisions to make wise decisions. If you're not submitted to the, to, to the, to the will of God and to the heart of God, if you're, if you're not submitted to the fear of the Lord, you are too emotionally involved in your own decisions. In your notes, it says this, it is our emotions that make the obvious seem less obvious. It is our emotions that can make the truth of God's word, the, the obvious truth of God, seem less obvious. I know it in my own life, right? It's, it's why some of you may be better at managing somebody else's money than your own. <laughs> It's why, it's why you can look at somebody else's life and the answer to their problems seems so stupid simple and yet your life is so complicated. Just can't figure it out. I don't understand. I can solve everybody else's problems and it's so easy and simple, but for some reason I, I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do. It's why you can look at your neighbor and know exactly what they need to do to fix their marriage and yet you're at a loss at how to make yours better because we're emotionally involved in our own decisions. It's why your kids baffle you and you look at a complete stranger's kids and you're like, they need a good spanking, right? I'll fix them. Give me five minutes with that kid. Gone, right? He'd be done, right? But, but your own kids, oh my gosh, I have no idea. It's like they're not even humans. It's like nobody has ever had a child like mine. Nobody has ever heard any, I, I have no idea what to do with my kid. Why? Because they baffle us, but we can look at other people's and know exactly what the problem is. Because when we're not submitted to the fear of the Lord, you can be sabotaging your own wise decisions because you're too emotionally invested in them. Hmm. I'll keep going. Here, here's, here's a big thing, and, and I'd love for us to, to, to capture this because I think it's important whenever we're talking about wisdom and gaining wisdom. There is so much more at stake than your own personal life decisions. When, whenever we talk about wisdom, we've been even, you know, studying through the book of Proverbs, we can turn things inward really quickly and think, I, I need to get more wisdom so that I can, my life will get better. If, if, if I can apply whatever I, this is in Proverbs to my life, then, then, then I'll make more money or, 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 or I'll, I'll, I'll get richer or I'll be more popular or this will fix this, this issue in my life. That may be true, but, but it's not the end goal. Let me read to you in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. It says this, Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. Whoever fears the Lord, if you have the fear of the Lord, it will be a secure fortress. But the end goal is not just for you. You are not the end goal. It says, and for their children it will be a refuge. Your wisdom will be a refuge to your children. I want you to think about this. You are the next generation's ancestors. You know that? You may be like, but I'm not dead. I know. It doesn't matter. You are the next generation's 
ancestors, and we don't like to think of ourselves as ancestors because we're still alive. We're not dead yet. But God is interested in you being a good ancestor while you're still alive. Because we don't, we don't get to like rewrite our legacy after we're dead. We're writing our legacy one wise decision after another. That's what creates a legacy. And that's what God's about. God's interested in you being that good ancestor, that your wisdom would be a refuge to your children so that even though they may walk and they're sitting in the seat of the simple or, or they're sitting in the seat of the fool or the mocker, when they turn around and they, they know where they can go because there's a track record of wisdom and wise choices in your life. They know that, that your wisdom will be a refuge to them. Amen? In your notes it says this, the decisions that you make today will have an effect on a generation you may never see. It is not about you. It's not just about making your personal life better, your immediate needs better. We seek after wisdom because we're called to steward the moment so that we can make tomorrow better. That's what God has called us to, to lift up our heads and to look beyond ourselves because it's the only time we make wise choices anyway. Usually when I look down at myself, all I'm making are selfish choices. But if I'm thinking about those that come after me, I don't. So, Proverbs 8.11 says this. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Let me read that to you again. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. And I, I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, I don't know if I really believe that. I, I don't know if that really, it, it resonates with me, but how do I know if I actually believe that wisdom is more precious than rubies? I'll tell you, it's not simply because I nod my head and say amen and like, that sounds great, more precious than rubies. The only way that you truly know if you believe that verse is if wisdom has actually cost you something. Has wisdom actually cost you something to get? Because what I found in my life, it always comes at a risk. It always comes at a cost. In fact, what it says in Proverbs 4, 7 is this. The beginning of wisdom is this. I love it. Get wisdom. And then he says this. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Wise choices will cost you something. Maybe it costs you a relationship. Maybe it, it costs you a job opportunity. Maybe it costs you the favor of man or an upgrade or something financially. It always comes at a cost. There's always a risk. Because what, what, we, what we hold in tension, every single one of us, to some degree or another, hold these two things in tension. Am I going to be, allow my decisions to be dictated by the fear of the Lord? Or am I going to allow my decisions to be dictated by the fear of man? It's those two things that we hold in tension. Am I going to have the fear of man or, or the fear of the Lord? These, these two things are always at some sort of interplay in our life. It, it's the crux of the choice that we're all faced with. Proverbs 29, 25 says it the best. It says this, fear of man will prove to be a snare. In other words, a trap. The fear of man will prove to be a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord or has fear in the Lord, 
is kept safe. So Solomon is warning us, the fear of man is a trap. So my question to you is this, what is the loudest voice in your life? What is the loudest voice? Because the loudest voice that you hear is the voice that you will heed. That's what we know to be true. In your notes, it says this, whoever you fear, you end up worshiping. Whatever you fear, you end up worshiping. Is it the fear of man or the fear of the Lord? Because you'll end up serving that which you fear. So if you have the fear of man, that's the loudest voice in your life. The Bible says it's a trap. Why? Because it's based on comparison. All it's about is getting more er. I need, I need to be richer. I need to be better. I need to be more popular-er. I, I, need, I, 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 I need to have more er than the person next to me. The fear of man will catch you and trap you every single time, and it's exhausting. Why? Because sometimes we think we're doing good because we're doing better than the person next to us. Well, I have, I'm richer and more popular-er than her, so therefore I must be doing better. But the problem is this. Once I've smoked her, now, oh, man, there's there's always somebody that's richer than you. There's always somebody who's better than you. There's always someone who's more talented-er than you or popular-er than you. And so you, as soon as you think, oh man, I've arrived. I, I finally satisfied the fear of man. No, now you realize that, no, now I just have to keep going and keep going and keep going. And it's, and it's absolutely exhausting because it's never satisfied. The fear of man. Because when we back away from the fear of the Lord, we back into the fear of man. When we back away from the wisdom of God, we back into the wisdom of man. What do I mean by that? What's this? The fear of man tries to convince us that through the folly of many, there is wisdom. Let me say that again. The fear of man tries to convince us that through the folly of many, there is wisdom. In other words, everybody's doing it. So it must be good. Apparently it's legal. It must be fine, right? All my friends seem to think that it's cool. It must be the Lord's will. The fear of man will try to convince you that through the wisdom of, of many follies, right, that there's wisdom in that. And it's just a whole bunch of people coming up with ideas on their own. It's deceptive. It's deceptive. In your notes, it says this, the fear of man can cause you to think that the applause of man is the fear of the Lord. The fear of man will cause you to think that the applause of man is the fear of the Lord. In other words, if all my friends are doing it and man, they're getting, I'm getting patted on the back, I must be doing the will of God. If everyone's saying, yeah, good, yeah, it was a great job, pastor, good job, you're doing awesome, everything, look, it's still the fear of man. Unless you're submitted to the fear of God. You will continually be duped into thinking that the applause of man is the fear of the Lord. And then we find out how hollow it is because it's never actually satiated. Paul warns Timothy of this. I want to leave you with this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, For the time will come 
when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn, away, turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps us grounded. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps us growing. So, so we're talking about, okay, yeah, I need to get the fear of the Lord. I get it. Okay, I need to get rid of the fear of man. I get it. Like, how do I get that? What, 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 what do I do to be able to, to get the fear of the Lord in my life? It's this. It's very simple. Encounter God. Encounter him. Whatever that looks like, encounter him. Listen, when I first encountered the Lord, it was the summer before my ninth grade year, was the first time that I received the fear of the Lord. I truly believe when you encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit, when you encountered Jesus for the first time or for the 550th time, you encounter the fear of the Lord. How do I know this? Why? Because in my own life, I started finding myself not being myself. I started to like, I wanted to read my Bible. I never wanted to read my Bible. I encountered, I encountered God. I wanted to pray. The only reason I used to want to pray is so that I wouldn't get smote. I said all the Hara Fathers and Hail Marys to be able to get that thing done, and that was the only time I wanted to talk to him, right? I started to love the things that he loved and, and hate the things that he hated. I started to see people as, rather than like an obstacle to get in, in that, that are in my way, I started to look at them as possible opportunities to be able to share the love of Jesus, I started acting like I don't even know. It, it wasn't me. I found that like what was important to him became important to me. And what was not important to Jesus all of a sudden just lost its luster, lost its place of importance in my own life. And I started to look at the Bible the, not just as a holy book to, to kind of like put on my, on my nightstand, but I saw it as, a, as life, as hope, as guidance. And I would say if you've never encountered the sobering presence of God, you may have never encountered God before. Because when you encounter him, you encounter the fear of the Lord. And it's not, oh no, I gotta run away from him. It's so scary, I, I need to stay away from God. The fear of the Lord makes you terrified to be away from him. It's not, oh my gosh, I need, to, I need to run away. I want to be away from this thing. The fear of the Lord brings you a, just a terror of saying, Lord, don't ever leave me. I just want more of that in my life. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? I wrote down some things because I was, as I was praying this week about what does it look like to have the fear of the Lord in my life? What, what would be some signs that would tell me, okay, this is, I, I have the fear of the Lord in my life. And uh, so I wrote down five things really quick. <clears throat> the first one is this. We obey him instantly. We obey him even if it doesn't make sense. We obey him even if it hurts. <laughs> we obey him even if we don't see the benefit. And we obey him to completion. You might have seen kind of a common word in there, obey. When we come into a covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ, we're called to walk in obedience. 
And the Lord was really like calling me to repent of something this week because I know I've been a part of it in American Christianity. I think that for far too long, American Christians have numbed themselves into inactivity because they're seeking spiritual signs. So what I mean by that is that so, so often um, we, 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 we wait, you know, God will speak something to us or we'll just get this sense like we're supposed to go and launch out and to do something or to give this or do that or, or, or quit this or, or break up with her or ask, you know, wh- whatever this looks like. And yet we, 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 we numb ourselves into inactivity because we're waiting for the sign. And so what I find is that in, in American Christianity, specifically in charismatic uh, Christianity, we, we look for, for three confirmations, two affirmations, a, a, a prophetic word, a sign, and two double rainbows. If, Lord, I, if you just give me all of those, I'll do what you're asking me to do. Lord, just two double rainbows would be cool. Like, I would do it for two double rainbows. But God, I, I, if you just give me those, 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 I don't know the difference between a confirmation and affirmation, just give me some of those affirmations and, uh, and the prophetic word and, and all of that, then, then, then I will do that thing that you've called me to do. And I'll, and I'll hear people say this. They'll say like, you know, I'll, 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 I'll be speaking to someone. They'll say, oh my goodness, you are the fourth person this week to tell me that exact same thing. It's almost like God's, trying to tell me something and and forgive me because I've been in this thing for a long time but I, I have these thoughts that go through my head and one of them is this why are you bragging about your lack of the fear of the Lord if God is calling you into something just walk into it obey him what is it What is it that you're not trusting in this area of your life in? Because what I know to be true is you trust him in other areas of your life. Implicitly. You didn't wake up this morning and think, I'm not really sure if the sun's going to come up. I mean, it might, but we'll wait and see, right? No, but here's the reality. You don't wake up in the morning and think, I'm not sure if my feet are going to hit the floor because I might just float up and hit the ceiling because I'm not trusting in gravity today. No. Why do we trust in that? We trust in it because God has a track record of trust, of being a good father. He has a good track record of providing for us. He has a good track record of being a loving father, that he saves us even when we don't deserve it, and he seeks us even when we're running away from him. He has a good track record. And so what I would just say to you is, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about today? Maybe maybe it's something that he's been speaking to you about like years ago that he's bringing back up again. And it's like, man, I can't even believe it. This is the 150th time that somebody said something to me about this. It's almost like God's trying to, maybe he is. Maybe he is. And I don't say this as condemnation. I don't say this as like a, yeah, yeah, you got to do this and do that. I'm just saying, walk in obedience to God. Because if you want to grow in wisdom, you want to grow, you want to mature in Christianity, you've got to start where you last left off. What was the last thing that you just failed to walk in obedience to the Lord in? do that. So what is God speaking to you about? For maybe for some of you, you're coming to this place where, you know what, like you've been dabbling and nibbling around the edges of Christianity and and you're kind of at this place where you're like, you know what, I think this may be the time, the day for me to be able to step forward and go all in and say, you know what, God, I'm going to trust you with my life. Maybe for the first time, I'm going to choose to trust you. 
And I know it's hard. I know it's scary. But God's never called me to anything other than that. It's always been hard and it's always been scary and it's always been worth it. And for maybe for some of you, you just need to walk in obedience to that thing that God has called you to that you just know that you know that you know that you know that he's called you to. And it's scary and and, and you you don't necessarily know what's going to happen and how it's all going to turn out. But but you can trust him because a track record of trust. So Lord, I just know, I know that you keep the world spinning. Lord, the very breath in my lungs this morning has been given by you. Lord, you are my provider. You created everything that I think that I've built. You've given me everything that I think that I've earned. You've kept me alive through everything, and so I will trust you. So maybe your answer to Jesus today is just yes. Just yes. I just want to encourage you as we enter into this last song of worship today to ask this question. Lord, what are you speaking to me about? And if the Lord, don't worry about who's in front of you, who's behind you, fear of man, all that kind of stuff. If you feel like the Lord is calling something out of you today, whether that's to to encounter him for the first time or to encounter him for the thousandth time of saying, Jesus, I, I, I hear you. I hear you calling me today. I want you to just do something just between you and Jesus. Just lift your hand up and say, God, I hear you today. It's scary. I don't know what, what, what's on the other side of this, but I hear you. I hear you speaking to me, Lord. I don't really know what it is, but, but I know that I, I'm just responding. Just raise your hand up. Raise your hand up. It's just between you and Jesus. Now, this is what I want to encourage you to do. If that's you, maybe this is your first time. You're saying like, I, I don't know what this looks like. Or maybe, maybe you just know that you know that you know that God's calling you to something. You've been avoiding it. As we enter into worship this last song, I just want to encourage you to kind of make your way up here. And sometimes the first step of obedience is literally the first step of obedience of saying, Jesus, I don't know what's on the other side of this, but I'm choosing to trust you. I'm choosing to, I'm choosing to, to, to see you through this. I'm choosing to, to bow my knee to the fear of the Lord today. And so as I pray, I just pray you just make your way down here. We'd love to be able to come alongside and pray God in any area of your life, any area that you need prayer in. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would call people to yourself. God, call your people to yourself. I pray for courage right now for those that, that, are, that are standing in their seats saying, I just don't know if this is for me. Lord, I pray that you would confirm that in them. Lord, that they would, they would be called of your name. Whether this is the first time or the, or the 500th time, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would call people to yourself. And as they pour down, Lord, I pray that, that you would meet them here. We know that the only answer is encountering the, the loving presence, the pervasive love of God today. So meet with us today. Whether we're in our seats or we're down here at the front, Lord, I pray that you would encounter us today. That the fear of the Lord would become our strength that it would become the strength for our children and our children's children. Lord, pour that into us today. Lord, have your way, have your way. As we sing, make your way down. Sure.